0: The following includes descriptions about sexual violence. Please be advised. I told you I've been thinking a lot about lists. How do you decide what's important to remember and how do you decide what's not? And when it comes to creating a list like the one the Charlotte Diocese has committed to release by the end of the year, one that includes the names of credibly accused clergy who at some point served at the Charlotte Diocese, how do you begin that process? How do you know when it's complete?
1: In our justice system, if you're credibly accused of murder, people know about it. You know, your name is put in the newspaper. That's not kept secret. The people in North Carolina have just as much a right as anybody else to know what priests who've been employed by that diocese have been known to have sexually violated children, minors, or vulnerable adults.
0: That's Tom Doyle. Some describe him as one of the original whistleblowers of the child abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. Doyle is an expert in Catholic law and a former priest. He walked away from the Catholic Church and the priesthood about 15 years ago, largely in part because of the abuse and the cover-up he saw.
1: When the bishop assigns him to a parish as a pastor, as an assistant pastor, when he assigns him to work in a high school, he's telling those people that this man is morally and spiritually fit for this position, and you can trust him. And you can count on the fact that he's there for your spiritual and moral guidance.
0: He's dedicated the last 35 years of his career to helping hold the church accountable. He's routinely used as a court expert in lawsuits. He also uses his skills in other ways. For example, the Capuchin province of St. Joseph hired Doyle to audit personnel records. He dug through archives and documents to see what the organization's response to sexual abuse accusations and inappropriate behavior was. The audit went all the way back to the 1880s. It was published in 2013.
1: So we investigated every file of every Capuchin Franciscan that was still in the order, that had left the order, or that had died. We went back looking at files that went back to the 19th century. We also investigated the path of every report that they had ever received on any form of sexual abuse. So in North Carolina, the excuse that it's taking all this long is nonsense.
0: Doyle says the historical audit, similar to the one the Charlotte Diocese is undergoing, was completed in about a year. Remember, the Charlotte Diocese is young. It was founded in 1972. In May, Bishop Peter Jugis stated that the process of reviewing personnel files and other historical files was, quote, set in motion last fall, meaning fall of 2018. This episode, we're going to explore how is this elusive list made? How does the diocese determine if an accusation against a priest is credible? And how do you protect children from the very people who are supposed to be doing the protecting? I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is The List. Let's back up a minute. There are some dates that are going to be important for you to remember. Originally, the entire state of North Carolina was considered to be under the jurisdiction of the Raleigh Diocese. In 1972, the Charlotte Diocese formed. In 2002, the Boston Globe's investigative team Spotlight uncovers the deeply rooted child sex abuse scandal and practice of moving priests from parish to parish when an accusation arose. Media outlets all over the country were rushing to cover the crisis.
2: This is NBC Nightly
1: News with Tom Brokaw. NBC News in depth tonight, crisis in the church, the Catholic community in Massachusetts, dealing now with an ugly secret that's been hidden for far too long, sexual abuse of children by priests.
0: After this explosive story, the church decided it needed to take some action. And in 2002, a charter for the protection of children and young people was implemented. It's a fancy term for the guidelines and processes outlined for how to address child abuse accusations, which was lacking before 2002. That was a watershed moment, and since 2002, there's been a push for dioceses to release lists with the names of the credibly accused. Well, the Archdiocese of New York publishing what it calls a comprehensive list of all clergy in the diocese. After much hesitation, the Catholic Diocese of Columbus released 34 names Friday, who it says were credibly accused of sexual abuse by a minor. A growing reaction tonight into the Catholic Diocese of Richmond's decision to publicly list the names of all... The Catholic Naming names. The Archdiocese of Atlanta just put out a list the of Charleston The Charleston Catholic Diocese has released the list of priests credibly accused of sexual assault. In fact, the charter requires every diocese to make public the names of clergy as credible accusations are found against them. But Charlotte remains an outlier, and for reasons that are murky. Currently, the Charlotte Diocese does not have a dedicated spokesperson. David Haynes was the last one to hold the role and retired less than a year ago. Haynes spoke on behalf of Bishop Peter Jugis. In various interviews Haynes did, he offered some insights as to why a list hadn't been released. He told the Charlotte Observer in January 2019, the diocese wasn't convinced a list was needed for the healing of victims.
1: There is no empirical evidence that publishing a list brings comfort or aid to victims. We obviously have done a lot to harm uh, victims. We don't want to uh, pile on and do more.
0: Bishop Jugas was not made available for an interview. He did say in his statement in May that, quote, through my discussions with abuse survivors, I have come to believe that a full airing of abuse from the past is crucial in the healing process for victims and for the entire church. So while you won't hear directly from the bishop in this series, I can share with you some details about what happens when an accusation is reported to the Charlotte Diocese. Here's Father Patrick Winslow. His official title is Vicar General, which means he's second in command of the diocese. He had laryngitis at the time of this interview.
3: First, we notify civil authorities. Second, we engage an internal process which features a review board. The review board uh, comes together from different disciplines that would be expert in investigating these matters and looks into the question of credibility and comes to a conclusion as to whether or not This allegation has the semblance of truth. Meantime, the moment the allegation comes forward, any clergy is set on administrative leave, pending the outcome of the review board, Um, board's investigation into the matter and finding of credibility. The moment um, an allegation is found credible, it's reported uh, to the bishop, and he acts on their recommendations.
0: The diocese says the review board currently consists of 11 people. Nearly all are volunteers. One is a member of the clergy. Members come from different backgrounds, counseling and psychology, investigation, business, law, community affairs, and advocacy for the rights of children and victims. Through an email, the diocese said, quote, The board interviews abuse victims, clergy, and other witnesses and has a professional investigator assigned to them to investigate allegations. Due to the highly sensitive and independent nature of its proceedings, the board's work is confidential. The members of this review board are not clearly listed on the website of the diocese. And because the board's work is confidential and the diocese declined my request to speak to a member there's still a lack of clarity and transparency around how the board conducts its investigation and how it presents findings to the bishop. According to the website of the diocese, the bishop makes the final determination on the accused clergy's ability to minister in the diocese in accordance with the civil law and church law. And the last point I can tell you with certainty is that the diocese hired an independent investigative firm to do what they're calling a historical review of files dating back at least to 1972. That's similar to what Tom Doyle did for the Capuchin province of St. Joseph in Detroit. The firm hired by the Charlotte Diocese is USISS Agency, located in Huntersville. The staff consists of people who worked for the police, Secret Service, or DEA. The company's website says they specialize in various areas, including administrative and internal investigations, as well as sexual assaults. Right now, the diocese says the agency is going through tens of thousands of pages and more than 1,000 files. That's what Father Winslow says is taking so much time in publishing the list.
3: It's an enormous task to go through so many files um, in, in, in in the archives. But the people that have been entrusted with the responsibility are, are professional, they're qualified, uh, they're making amazing progress. Um, uh, we're going to do everything that we can to make sure that all those um, files can, can be uh, updated with current information uh, because these things go back so many decades, people may be uh, deceased. Uh, People may have taken action in the past, and it's important uh, to make sure that they're updated. And so it's not just the finding of the files that have an allegation, but also making sure that the proper research is done to bring it up to date.
0: I wanted to speak to USISS about the work the diocese has hired them to do and to learn more about their experience handling church documents. Although we had a scheduled interview, they canceled the day before. They said that after talking to the diocese, it probably wasn't a good idea to talk to me.
1: Hey, Sarah, this is Dave Stevens with ISS Agency. Uh, you were coming to meet with us in the morning. Um, I'm afraid we're gonna have to cancel and talking with clients. Um, we just really think it's probably not a good idea for us to meet.
0: Here are my two big questions for the agency that I didn't get a chance to ask. How long would the investigation take and when did they start working on the review for the Charlotte Diocese? Because according to Tom Doyle, who has done this type of work before, if you know what you're looking for, it shouldn't take too long.
1: You know, if you've got a team of people that know what they're doing and know what to look for, and you don't have to be an Einstein to figure out what to look for, but what they need to be told is that a lot of times the bishops, they most of the time when they're referring to sexual abuse, They use code language, coded words. They don't come out right out and say, Father so-and-so anally raped a 12-year-old boy. They'll say nonsense like you know, improper touches or or inappropriate affection or crap like that. There's a whole lexicon of stuff that they use.
0: Basically, Doyle says, you need someone who can read the language of the Catholic Church. If you don't have someone who knows how to translate, how can you expect to get an accurate list? Another part of the problem, Doyle says, is consistency.
1: The bishop is basically the monarch in his diocese. One of the major problems with this issue across the board, with this particular issue, is that there's no consistent definition of what it means to be credibly accused. Now that can mean a number of things. It can be a broad spectrum. What does it mean to be credibly accused?
0: The diocese says if an accusation is found to be credible, that's not the same thing as a finding of guilt but there are consequences. The accused will be removed from ministry and included on the credibly accused list published by the diocese. The accusation should be reported publicly, including in the Catholic News Herald, the paper of the diocese, and parishes should be informed. So even though the diocese isn't officially calling the credibly accused person guilty, they in some ways are treated as such. I mentioned earlier that Tom Doyle is sometimes used as a court expert when lawsuits are filed against various dioceses. Charlotte attorney Seth Langson, who represents sex abuse survivors, has used Doyle's services before. Langson represented Anthony from episode one when he attempted to file a civil suit against Richard Farwell and the Charlotte Diocese in 2011. That lawsuit was ultimately dismissed due to statute of limitations. Langson says the secrecy around how the Charlotte Diocese works is nothing new to him. Langson doesn't trust the church and questions why the diocese is taking so long to publish the list, and also if this independent investigative firm is the right one for the job.
2: I wonder what experience they actually have doing church cases or doing other what other investigations they've done.
0: Langson has taken on multiple civil lawsuits against the Charlotte Diocese because of that, he's seen a lot of documents. Langson says some of the documents contain information on allegations going back to the 1980s, but those documents are now sealed.
2: They were ordered by the court after they objected to giving names of people, of the priests who'd been accused of sexual misconduct with a minor. I think it was going back to 1980. So I've got information on that. I can't say anything about who's in that, whose papers I saw and what names I learned. As far as I know, I'm the only person outside of the Charlotte Diocese. Uh, Who's ever seen this information? You know, I'm not getting younger. (laughs) And yeah, it's very frustrating. And I just feel other people need to know.
0: Point being, Langson says he's seen a lot. And he's been waiting not only for himself, but for his former clients to see who is on the list and how it measures up.
2: I'll be very surprised if I don't know of one or more names of priests who've had what I think are credible accusations that aren't on the list.
0: Langson's area of expertise is child sex abuse cases. And in that line of work, there's a lot of heartbreak. One, because of the nature of the cases. But also, there are a lot of cases he says he has to turn away because of statute of limitations. But Langston was able to reach a settlement with the Charlotte Diocese in one case. It's what he calls a success story. Not just because they were able to settle with the diocese for a million dollars, but because the abuser ended up behind bars.
2: That's one success story in many ways. Because the client, you never get rid of the damage. Um, To cope with the damage better than probably, than almost any other client I've had in my career.
0: We'll hear from that client after this quick break. I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is The List. Charlotte attorney Seth Langson has one client in particular that found success going up against the Charlotte diocese. That client was 35-year-old Robbie Price, who now lives in Florida. I reached him via Skype. Price grew up in Charlotte along with his four sisters.
4: Really close with my siblings, and so we always play together and play games and board games Monopoly, and so it was just a, a fun childhood until that point.
0: Church was important to Price and his family. He was an altar boy at St. Matthew Catholic Church and attended youth group weekly. Church was so ingrained in his family's life that when he needed to have a biopsy on a swollen lymph gland, Price's mother asked Robert Yergel, a priest assigned to St. Matthew's, to come to the hospital and pray for the family. The year was 1999. Price was 14. From then on, Yergel took a special interest in Price, which, from the outside, did not appear suspicious.
4: It looked like a good thing, you know, to have somebody who's a church, a man of God, you know, guide with my parents, a kid through his early teenage years.
0: But things quickly took a turn with your goal. It started with hugs that lasted too long. Indecent is the word Price used to describe them.
4: Being someone who always looked up to priests and, and those in the church as extensions of God and those whom we obey and We try to live our lives like, you know, I didn't know if it was right or wrong or what I should be doing. No child should ever have to be put into the question of whether this was right or wrong, you know, but that's the position in which I was forced into by this man.
0: According to Price and the civil lawsuit, Price's family had no idea the abuse was going on. The family held Yergel in high regard and trusted him completely. Price's parents would let Jurgle pick Price up and drop him off at youth group. That time alone in the car, Price said, was when Jurgle molested him, and it continued inside the church in a room behind the altar. The abuse included masturbation, oral sex, attempted digital penetration, and sexual activity. Jurgle told Price he couldn't tell anyone, and that people might be mad at him if he did. And Price, being young, impressionable, and not fully grasping what happened, Believed him, Yourgul's abuse focused around controlling and manipulating Price. Your goal demanded Price check in with him regularly. He demanded Price write him affectionate emails,
4: telling him how much I cared about him, and you know, and if I didn't do those things, he would. He would get upset, and he would start questioning whether I you know, cared about him, and you know, that was another form of manipulation of you know trying to portray feelings or um, to kind of take the. I'm assuming guilt off of him, you know, like the, maybe this child wants it, which obviously a child could never consent to something like that.
0: Robbie inadvertently sent one such email to a diocese employee, M.J. Dawson, on October 6, 1999. In the email, Price thanked Yergol for talking to him. He also wrote, quote, I love you in all capital letters. The lawsuit says Yergol was distressed about this email being sent to the unintended person and instructed Robbie Price to send another email to Dawson, asking her not to read it. But Dawson did, and she forwarded both of the emails to her supervisor, a woman named Pat Tomlinson, who was also concerned about the context of the emails. Tomlinson passed the emails on to a pastor. According to the lawsuit, none of the adults reported their concerns to authorities, and no investigation into any kind of sexual abuse was conducted. Robert Yergel was transferred from Charlotte to New Jersey that same month. As we know from the Boston Globe's reporting, this was a common practice back then. Having Yergel out of state changed things for Robbie Price. He did not want anything to do with Yergel. The lawsuit says Price was tormented by the abuse by that point. Yergel was still trying to communicate with Price through email, and Price says he would delete the messages. Even still, Yergel continued to stay in touch with Price's family, even speaking with Robbie Price's mother on the phone occasionally. Fast forward to Thanksgiving 2007. Price is around 21 years old. The trauma from the abuse had built to a boiling point in Price. He was tortured by what Yergel did and was tired of being afraid. So he decided to tell his family about what happened when he was a teenager. He started by confiding in one of his sisters.
4: They all immediately gave me hugs and said, Robbie, we're so sorry. We love you. What can we do to help? Um, which was something that Jurgle always said would it never happen. He would always tell me that my family would be upset with me or they wouldn't believe me and they'd be mad at me. And, you know, through my sister's actions, showed you know she, my sister showed me that that was not accurate, that it was another form of manipulation that he was using to hide his misdeeds.
0: His family got in touch with Seth Langston, who helped Price connect with the Mecklenburg County District Attorney's Office and the police a criminal investigation was opened. As part of the investigation, Price called Yergel and spoke to him for the first time in years to try and get him to confess with the police officers listening. Price said they wanted to eliminate all doubt in order to prove the abuse occurred. And what better way to do that than to get a confession? And it worked.
4: I remember distinctly feeling that he was very scared. He sounded very timid. He sounded very quiet and shy and soft-spoken. Like, I remember him thinking, was there somebody else around that he had you know, talking code, essentially?
0: To avoid a trial, Yurgle accepted a plea deal and pled guilty to second-degree sex offense. He served almost eight years in prison and is registered as a sex offender. Yergel was removed from ministry in 2008. The Charlotte Diocese says it was unaware of any allegations of abuse until 2008, when Yergel was arrested in New Jersey. I tried to reach out to Yurgle via phone, email, and certified mail to alert him of this series. Besides a postal confirmation that he received my letter, I never heard back from him. The day of Yurgle's criminal sentencing, Price addressed the court and Yurgle.
4: The statement was more so about me reclaiming my life and saying something to the man who had essentially ruined my childhood for me and ruined religion for me and still trust issues that I should never have had to deal with. And so I wanted to ensure that I could tell Yergel that this was me taking back my life. And I wanted not only everybody in the courtroom that day, but anybody who was reading an article to know that he's a child molester. He needs to be in prison and he should be punished for everything that he's done. In order to hold back the tears and all the emotion, I remember just gripping the piece of paper that I had written all of my, my thoughts and my feelings and my statement on. Mm-hmm. I remember looking over at him at one point um, before and after I had read it. And then I remember very distinctly them handcuffing him, which, um, which was a, a moment that I'll never forget.
0: After the criminal proceedings... Price, with the help of his lawyer, Seth Langson, filed a civil suit. That resulted in a $1 million settlement with the Charlotte Diocese. It was important to pursue a lawsuit, Price said, to hold the Catholic Church accountable, to make sure as many people as possible knew about the abuse and Robert Yergel's name, and the name of the Charlotte Diocese. Robbie Price has a life he loves now, and in a lot of ways, he says, he feels lucky.
4: I have a very supportive husband and uh, an extended family now, and a, a amazing son who's now three years old. The abuse is still something that sits with me every day. I go to therapy and discuss aspects of what happened to me or the ramifications of you know what happened to me to this day. Um, the abuse did a lot of terrible things. But because of the way in which I was able to tell my story and have the support from my family and friends and, you know, my lawyers at the time, I felt I feel like I was able to take back portions of my life that otherwise I wouldn't have ever been able to.
0: And you heard Price say he has a son and he takes protecting his son and really any young person in his life very seriously. In fact, when he was born... Price made his son a promise.
4: I promise I'll protect you from things that will hurt you. And I said that for all of my nieces and nephews the first time I ever met them. you know, It's my job to help protect them. And I do everything in my power to make sure that they're protected. And you know, that's my job as, as a dad, but also as a person living on this earth.
0: It's important to Price that even though he had, quote, successful criminal and civil cases, that the Charlotte diocese release a list of credibly accused clergy, not just for validating what happened to him, but also to alert the public that Yergel is a dangerous man. The list, in a way, is a warning. It's a way to protect others from possible abuse. For now, there is one list that's already public that Price is able to check whenever he wants to see Robert Yergel's name. It's the sex offender registry. Price gets some comfort making sure Yergel is on that list and still more than a thousand miles away. Because even though Price has his new life and is processing his trauma with the help of a therapist, the memory of the abuse isn't ever going to completely go away. Like when Yergel was released from prison in 2016. Out of all the days of the year Yergel could have been released, it fell on Price's birthday. That's a reminder that will always be there no matter how much time has passed. Price has some theories as to why the list hasn't been released. So do other survivors and experts I've spoken to. We'll get into the why next time. Why does this abuse occur in the first place? Why do some people leave the Catholic Church because of the abuse? And why do others stay despite it? That's next time. I'm Sarah D'Elia. This is The List. The List is reported, hosted, and produced by me, Sarah D'Elia. Greg Collard is the editor, with additional editing support from Judon Marshall. Alex Olgan helped with the fact-checking and production of this series. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah WFAE, and that's Sarah with an H. Keep the conversation going with the hashtag #wfaetheList. Find out more information about The List at WFAE.org thelist The List.